Would you take your Bibles with me this morning and open to the book of Romans, chapter 1. A few weeks back, we started a study through the book of Romans that will take us a good while. 44 messages, I'm not sure. I may pause after chapter 4, do something else for a bit, and then come back, or do the same after 8 and 12, we'll see. Um, But this morning is our fourth message, and our text is Romans chapter 1, verse 18 through verse 32. If you have a Bible you picked up from either information table, uh, Romans chapter 1 is on page 939. I just want to say just a real quick word, too. Uh, I know this, this morning, uh, some of our student members are graduating and some parents are with them. And I, I just want to say a, a quick word to you as, uh, as one of their pastors over these, these number of years. I say, pray for my son um, my, my children, but I think about my, my oldest is, is now about to be 15. And so I, it felt like it wasn't too many years ago that I was relating to the students, and, and now I'm relating to the students' parents. Um, but uh, as my oldest is, is getting older, and I think about them going to, to college, one of the most important factors in my own mind, if, if they go to Union uh, or somewhere local, that would be great, but, but if, they, if they go elsewhere, one of my deep prayers will be, Lord, would you Put them somewhere where nearby there's a healthy church so that they could be part of a believing community who will teach them to love God and love the gospel and love the church more. And I, I've prayed regularly for, for your children that, that you have left with us, that that would be true of them here, that they would grow to love God and love the gospel and love his church more. And um, man, he has been so gracious. Uh, to us, I think, to uh, see that happen again and again. And so I just want to thank you for, for sending your kids uh, to us. And man, give thanks to God for his, his graciousness to us. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. Once more, if you're able, would you stand so that we might honor the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, I'll read through verse 32. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse." For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men. And receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness and evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God. Insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Would you remain standing as we pray? Father, I I long to see the preaching of your word in this very moment to be the means that that you use to bring 
great comfort to some and great conviction to others and, and, and to all of us, an eagerness to preach the gospel. But Lord, I know, even as Michael prayed earlier, I know on my own, I, I, I know that uh, I am inadequate for that task. And so I want to pray explicitly asking that this time would not be a demonstration of the wisdom of man, but a time in which your spirit demonstrates and shows forth his power. I pray that your spirit would be powerful among us, present among us, convicting and comforting and moving and making us a people who not only see and understand, but who love your word and everything that it says so that we might live lives of obedience to Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. For the last number of years, probably 15 or so, I, with the exception of this past year, I've used the fall as a time when I have a theology class in Sunday school. Once every four years that class focuses on the doctrine of salvation. And one class in that doctrine of salvation class, I choose to focus on asking this question. What about those who never hear? What about those individuals? What about that man on the island, if you will? The the individuals who uh, never hear the gospel, never hear the name Jesus Christ, never hear about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. What about them? And those some of you may have on your to-do list for the fall of 2018, the Doctrine of Salvation Science School class, I'm going to give a bit of a spoiler this morning. Without exception, every time I had teach that class and offer that lesson and ask that question, I answer it this way. That man's only hope is that somebody would get on a boat or plane or whatever and would get over to that island and preach to him the gospel. Say to him that God the Son took on flesh and lived a perfect life and died on the cross to pay for our sins and on the third day was raised from the dead so that if anyone repents of their sins and places their faith in the crucified and risen Lord Jesus Christ, not only can they have forgiveness of sins, but the righteousness of Jesus Christ is then credited to them so that they're both forgiven and deemed righteous before God the judge. That's the man's only hope that he hears the gospel, that he repents and believes. Otherwise, he's condemned. And I understand that every time I go over that lesson and I give that answer, that there can rise up within us this sense, this feeling that feels like that is so utterly unjust, unrighteous, unfair, We can begin to think in our minds of this man or these individuals who have never heard of the gospel as if they are innocent and as if they are ignorant. And therefore think that God somehow would be unjust in condemning them. And and knowing that that's the case and knowing that that's the feeling that can rise up in our hearts every time then. I mean, I'm giving you the whole Sunday school class now. Every time I I do this, then I, I, I go to Romans 1, 18 through 32, our text this morning. And the reason I go here is because this text reminds us that God's wrath is against all mankind. It reminds us why God's wrath is against all mankind. It reminds us why God's wrath is against all mankind, and that is just. But it also reminds us of the power and the hope of the gospel. It is crucial, it is crucial that you and I know that supposed ignorance or innocence that we supposedly assume is true is not a means by which man can be okay with God. Let me say it this way. If it were true that those who never heard the gospel were okay, that they weren't condemned, that they wouldn't be thrown into a lake of fire on the final day, then this should be our approach. Every one of us should shut our mouths. We should not sing the gospel anymore. We should not speak the gospel anymore. We should not evangelize anymore. And hopefully, within a generation or two, maybe three, the gospel will sufficiently die out 
so that no one has ever heard it, so that everyone can claim ignorance, and therefore everyone would be okay. But brothers and sisters, we know the Scripture explicitly says we must preach the gospel. We just finished going through the book of Matthew, which Jesus ends saying, go, baptize, make disciples, teach them to obey everything that I've commanded you, which includes bowing the knee in repentance and faith to the crucified and risen Lord Jesus Christ. We just began the book of Romans, wherein Paul writes in chapter 1, I'm under obligation to preach the gospel, which I'm eager to do to those of you who are in Rome. You and I also must feel an eager obligation to preach the gospel. Well, why? Why is it that Paul was so eager to preach the gospel? Why is it that Paul was so moved to preach the gospel? Or let me ask it for us in the present. How in the world are we going to find ourselves eager to preach the gospel? And I think in large measure, it falls in understanding what Paul teaches us in Romans chapter 1 verses 18 through 32. This text is connected with what Paul said before, where Paul says, I'm eager to preach the gospel, for it's the power of God to salvation, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. He then goes on and begins our text for, that is to say, this eagerness, this understanding of the power of the gospel and the righteousness of the gospel is connected with what I understand about man and with what I understand about God's wrath to them. And so this morning, I simply want to make four points from this text. The first one's going to be really brief, And my prayer is that this understanding of this text will move us to be greater in our hearts, feel greater in our hearts, an eager obligation to preach the gospel. The first point is simply this. God's wrath is against everyone who isn't trusting in Christ. God's wrath is against everyone who isn't trusting in Christ. This is where Paul begins, verse 18. This is kind of the thesis for what's going to follow. In fact, this is the thesis for what's going to follow all the way through chapter 3, verse 20. Paul says in verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So this is to say... Every person who has not consciously placed his faith or her faith in the crucified and Lord Jesus Christ is right now under the wrath of God. This is obviously true for those who have heard the gospel and rejected faith in Christ, but it is also true for those who have not heard the gospel and have not explicitly said, I refuse to believe Jesus who was crucified and risen on the third day. Every man without exception who has not placed his faith in Jesus Christ is under God's wrath. That's point one, but that brings up an obvious question, doesn't it? And that question is why? Why is every man who has not placed his faith in Jesus Christ under God's wrath? And the answer is point two. God's wrath is against humanity because every person has rebelliously rejected God. God's wrath is against humanity because every person has rebelliously rejected God. Now, here's where you may say, well, Lee, you just messed up with your introduction. Because if you talk about the man on the island, it's fair to say, it's fair to say of that guy who's never heard the gospel, that he's not consciously placed his faith in the crucified and risen Lord Jesus Christ. But it's too much of a stretch to say he's rebelliously rejected God because he's not heard of God. Nobody preached the gospel to him. He's not read the Bible. How can you say that everyone, that humanity who has not placed his faith in Jesus Christ, that all of humanity who does not right now believe has rebelliously rejected God? It's because this is the answer. This is the, this is the argument of Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. I'll read Romans 18 again, but I want to read 19 and 20, and then we'll think through it together. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Paul says, when when God created the world and placed man in it, 
He created the world in such a way that it shows man who he is. Paul speaks of God's invisible attributes. Invisible means things that cannot be seen, right? His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, that, is, that, is, that God is powerful and that he is those things that we typically associate with being God. He is glorious and wise and majestic and all of these things. Paul says these invisible attributes, God has actually made it such that his invisible attributes are actually clearly perceived and that they are plain to all men so that every man who's able to think living in this world is able to look around at the created order and know that God exists. Know that the glory... Now, hear what I'm saying. Paul doesn't say they know that there is a God or an intelligent designer. No, 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 no. Paul says every man who's able to think looking at the world around him knows that God exists, that he is glorious, that he is powerful, that he is worthy of their worship. Well, you would say, but if that's the case... If that's the case, why then can we find men who say, I don't believe? I mean, isn't that sufficient proof to say Paul's out of his mind? To say that, that, that men know God when men would say otherwise. I don't believe in God. I am an atheist, right? And Paul's answer is not that men may profess and may claim and may in their foolish thinking reason that there is no God. Paul is saying the reason what's going on when men deny God is not that they're ignorant that God exists. God has made himself known so that he is plainly known to them. God has shown it to them. Let me say it this way. When God wants to make himself known, he succeeds without exception. And God was making himself known in the created order. So everyone knows. No one's ignorant. But Paul says, here's what's going on, as he argues in verse 18. Men who know what is true know that the God of the Bible exists and is glorious and powerful and worthy of worship. What they do is they suppress the truth of God in their unrighteousness. That is, they take what they know to be true and they push it down. Greg Bonson, a apologist from, from, from years back who, who died at an early age, used to argue that if you've ever taken a beach ball and you try to keep it under the water in a swimming pool so that you're, you're constantly having to work because that beach ball wants to come to the surface. He said, you know what it's like to be an unbeliever. They are constantly taking what is pushing against them, that which they know to be true, and they're suppressing the truth of God in their unrighteousness. When men deny that God is and refuse to honor Him and give Him the things that He deserves, their problem is not a lack of knowledge. Their problem is moral rebellion against their Creator. This is not a picture of innocence. Paul says in verse 21, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Every time an unbeliever looks at a glorious sunset or the beauty of the trees or the glory of the blooming flowers or the complexity of animals, which screams to them, as Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. Psalm 19 says, there's no speech, there are no words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes throughout all the earth, their words to the end of the world. Psalm 19 says, creation is screaming God exists. And when men deny it, it is because they are in rebellious rejection against their God. They are in moral rebellion against their God. And this is why Paul ends verse 20 saying, so they are without excuse. This is the condition of all of humanity. They know God exists. They know he's worthy of worship. They know he's worthy of honor. They know he's worthy of thankfulness. And yet, they suppress that truth because they have an axe to grind against their creator. In their moral rebellion, they reject and deny God. And what happens is a darkness, a rebellious darkness settles in man's heart. And this brings us to point three. Man's rejection of God is manifested in unrighteous thinking and living. 
man's rejection of God is manifested in unrighteous thinking and living. Paul says it's not only that all men know that God exists and refuse to honor Him and give thanks to Him and worship Him as God, but actually what men do is they actually turn, instead of honoring Him, instead of giving thanks to Him, instead of worshiping Him, they then turn to all manner of unrighteousness in their worship, in their thinking, and in their living. Paul says in verse 22, Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So it's not simply that they're denying worship to the glorious eternal God, but they're actually turning. It's not as if, therefore, they're kind of becoming neutral. I just won't be a worshiper. No, Paul says, instead of worshiping the glorious and true and and glorious God, they're turning and worshiping lesser things. I think sometimes we can imagine in our minds a scenario of that man on the island who's never heard the gospel. A, A scenario that we imagine, it moves our hearts. And in that scenario, it works something like this. We imagine that man on the island who's never heard the gospel, and we imagine him something like this happening with him as he's on the gospel, and he's watching the sunset, and he looks out and he says, this is glorious. This is obviously God who made this, who made this land, who made this water, who made these trees, who made that sky, who made the stars that come out at night. He's glorious, and I want to know him, and I want to worship him. And I want to love him. And then we say, that man? If the gospel doesn't come to him, that man is condemned? But according to Romans 1, that scenario that I just imagined is a fairy tale. If you gave that man a billion years, that scenario would never come true. Romans 1 says, actually, here's what's happening when that man is on that island. He looks at that sunset, and he looks at that water, and he looks at the land, and he looks at the trees, and he may not be thinking this consciously, but in his heart, he knows that God exists, and he suppresses that truth and his unrighteousness. And not only that, but instead of worshiping the one whom he knows is, he turns and he cuts down a tree, and he begins carving that tree into something that looks like him or that looks like a snake or a bird or some creeping thing on that island, and he decides to worship that. This is the state of man's hearts. They exchange the glory of God for mortal things, exchanging what is glorious and true and right and good for something lesser. In verse 25, Paul comes back to this refrain again about exchanging. He says in verse 25, I'll come back to 24 in a second, They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forevermore. Amen. Rather than worshiping the creator, they worshiped the creature. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie. So not only then does the rejection of God then affect their worship so that now all of a sudden their worship is idolatrous. It affects their thinking so that they're exchanging what is true for a lie. And this is why Paul can say their foolish hearts are dark and now all of a sudden they're becoming futile in their thinking, not thinking in accord with what is right and good and obviously true and beautiful. But then Paul argues in verse 26 that this rejection, this moral rebellious rejection against God also affects their lives. In verse 26, for this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. I'll go back to that in a second. For their women, this is the third exchange, right? Verse 23, exchange the glory of their moral God for images. Verse 25, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. Verse 26, their women exchanged the natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Paul will reference other sins. In fact, he does a list of them in verses 29 through 31. All of the things that all the manner of unrighteous living that flows out of a heart that has rebelled against its maker and rejected him. But I think there is a reason why Paul starts with homosexual activity. 
It's because perhaps most clearly homosexual activity is representative of the kind of sin that is clearly a rejection of what God has designed and deemed good and deemed right and deemed appropriate and exchanging that truth for a lie that is utterly unnatural and utterly against design. That's to say, it's not, against, it's not as if those who are sinning by homosexual activity are somehow worse than those who are sinning through heterosexually sexual morality. But I think the reason it comes up here is because it's perhaps the best illustration of the inappropriate unnaturalness that sin is. Women exchanging natural relations with men and men exchanging natural relations with women for having relations with one another. And Paul sees this as a picture of men giving over their hearts in darkness. That is to say, the fact that... Now, let me say a real quick note about this as well. Perhaps I would have stopped there if it had been 50 years ago, but I want to say something else here now. There are going to be many so-called Christians who say to us that the Bible doesn't condemn homosexual activity. Definitely not monogamous homosexual activity or homosexual activity to a couple who are supposedly married. But brothers and sisters, the Scripture could be no clearer. The Bible clearly holds this up as unnatural, as against God's design. In fact, it's held up foremost in a list that's going to include all manner of unrighteousness, evil and malice and covetous, envy, murder, strife, maliciousness, slandering, haters of God, inventors of evil, foolish, faithless, ruthless, disobedient to parents, on and on and on, right? In other words, what Paul is saying in this list is the fact that this world is filled with sexual morality, homosexual activity, slander, strife, envy, murder, and on and on and on is actually a result of the fact that man has rebelliously rejected his maker whom he knows exists. This sinful activity is just flowing out of their moral rejection against God. You want to know why is the world as it is? It's because every man knows God exists and has suppressed that truth, rejecting their maker. And this is the kind of unrighteous living that flows out of that. In fact, it's so bad, Paul says at the very end of our text in verse 32, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. In other words, what Paul is saying is this. It's not simply... That when they're rejecting God, they know God exists and they know He's worthy of honor and thanksgiving. But not only do they know that and yet reject Him, this unrighteous living and thinking and worship that flows out of their rejection against God, even that they know is wrong. They know that their sinful living is wrong and it's worthy of death before God. And yet not only, Paul says, do they practice it, but they give approval to those who do. What this means is, brothers and sisters, is your unbelieving neighbors who are living together and walking in sexual morality and are not married, every night when they go to bed, they know in their heart that what they're doing is wrong. The homosexual couple that goes and marches in that gay pride parade, well, merely the existence of the gay pride parade. It exists because in their heart they feel shame for what they're doing and they're trying to deal with it. And they want to gather others around them who will give approval to what they're doing. The young lady who walks into that abortion clinic and walks out with her child now having been taken from her leaves knowing that what she just did was terrible. The abortionist who took that child knows that what he did was worthy of judgment before God. And I think sometimes I see these things all retweeted and, and all this kind of stuff, but I think we, we feel ourselves amazed when his organization like Planned Parenthood tweets out something like, we believe the children are our future, or we have to make sure we're speaking up for those who have no voice. And they see stuff like that, and we're going, what? 
Do they not understand what tone deafness is? Well, brothers and sisters, the reason they say stuff like that is because in their hearts they're condemned. They know they're wrong. They're having to assuage their own guilt. And so they're asking people, approve of what we're doing while we're approving of the evil that you're doing. This is our world. All men know that God exists. They're rebelliously rejecting him. And that rebellious rejection doesn't leave them in some place of neutrality, but it leads them to all manner of unrighteousness in their worship, in their thinking, and in their living. And then the text gets even darker. And and if you think, good grief, brother, it's hard enough as it is. No need to get darker. I, I just want to ask you, just for a little bit longer, Let's just bear ourselves to this text a little bit longer. Because I'm afraid if we don't, we're never going to be as enamored with the gospel as Paul is. And if we don't, we're never going to feel that eager obligation that Paul feels to preach the gospel. So let's go just one more depth of darkness here, and let's hear this truth. Point number four, God's wrath is presently revealed as he gives people over to their sin. God's wrath is presently revealed as he gives people over to their sin. Sometimes we think of God's wrath as merely that which is coming in the future. There's going to be someday, we read it in the book of Revelation, the scene of of God, the Son, the Lamb, casting uh, individuals into a lake of fire, right, so that the wrath of God is against them night and day. It says they are tormented forever and ever. And we rightly think of that as the wrath of God. That is the wrath of God. But the wrath of God is not merely future. Paul argues in this text that the wrath of God is also being revealed right now in the present. Well, the question is, how? How is God's wrath revealed in the present? Is it revealed in such a way that if you do something sinful, something bad will always happen to you? No. In fact, it's revealed in a way that you would not anticipate. Just as the text gives this trio of exchanges, they exchange the glory of God for the, you know, mortal things, or they exchange the truth about God for a liar, they exchange natural relations for those that are unnatural. So there is a threefold statement as well about God. And that threefold statement is found in verse 24, 26, and 28, and it is God gave them over. Verse 24, therefore, because they had exchanged the truth about God for a lie, the glory of God for images resembling mortal man, therefore, verse 24, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Verse 26, for this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations, and on and on. Or verse 28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Brothers and sisters, when we look around us and we see the proliferation of sexually explicit pornographic material on our television sets and on our phones and on our computers and our tablets or whatever device it is we have or can create, and we say to ourselves, why? What is going on in the world? What's happening? Why, why is it so such like this? I, I've said before, by God's grace, and I remember in my adolescent years, sometimes being so eager to find uh, some kind of lustful image, and by the Lord's grace, there was none available to me. And now it's at our fingertips, everywhere. And when we see that and we say, why is this happening? Part of the answer is, because God is judging humanity, giving them over to dishonorable passions, giving them over to impurity. When we see the culture then not only practicing but applauding those 
who are committing practices that are not only dangerous and painful for individuals, but but destructive towards children. Homosexual activity and abortion and on and on and on. And we say to ourselves, what in the world is going on? Part of the answer is, what you're seeing is the wrath of God on humanity as he gives people over to their futile thinking and dark living to all manner of unrighteousness. When we read again about violence and murder on the street, disobedience to parents that is is so wicked that it makes us sick. And we read of people creating new ways of doing evil. What is being manifested is not men getting away with sin. What's being manifested is God's wrath against mankind. It would be gracious if God were to bring them out of that. It is His wrath to give them over to it, Paul says. Now, I want to make a few words of pastoral application about this. Let me give you a word of comfort, a word of conviction, and then just a general encouragement. We'll close with these three. A word of comfort. I thought one of the most challenging things in my life, especially in my high school years, um, as I was really fighting to walk in purity, was the fact that it looked like all around me, people were pursuing impurity and getting away with it. It seemed like I could just begin to name you individuals who were doing the very things that I was trying not to do. Yes, that part of me wanted to do, and I was fighting against trying to make war on sin. And yet it seemed like, here are all my friends, and they're getting away with it. And I've heard the same thing from some of you. I've listened in conversation how you'll relate to someone that that you've walked with in life, and they've, they've gone astray, and you feel in your heart like they're going astray, and it looks like all is well in their lives. And, and there's been this temptation in that moment to say, I, I, I feel like my knees are buckling. I, I don't think I can keep standing strong because I look around me. This is like Psalm 73. I look around me, it looks like everyone's doing well. And they're doing the very things that I'm trying to hold myself from, that my flesh craves and the Spirit is saying within me, I must not do. Brother or sister, this morning, do not be deceived What you are witnessing is not them getting away with it. God is not mocked. In fact, what you may be witnessing is the very judgment of God on their lives. Giving them over so that they don't turn back. So be comforted and press on in your obedience to the Lord. Stand strong. Don't let your knees buckle regardless of what's going on around you. Second, a word of conviction. You may be a professing believer this morning, and you're walking in unrepentant sin, and you're thinking all is well because you don't feel the disciplining hand of the Lord. Maybe you're doing things right now that you clearly at least knew at one point were sinful. And they're just not bothering you now. And it seems that all is well. And you don't feel conviction about it. You don't feel the Lord's disapproving hand. You don't sense His discipline on you. You're coming to church. All seems well, though you're walking in unrepentant sin. And what I want to say to you is, don't confuse the lack of a disciplining hand from the Lord as His approval for your sin. It may well be His judgment against you. The Lord may right now be in the act of handing you over in judgment. But if you hear my voice and merely hearing that causes your heart to say, I don't want that to be me. Then what may be going on in the sermon right now is the Lord's kind discipline. It may be that he's saying to you, I will not give you over, my son. I will not give you over, my daughter. Turn from your sins. 
And I want to plead with you, brother or sister, treat your sin as if it is trying to pull you into hell. Repent and turn to the God who graciously disciplines his children because he receives them in forgiveness when they turn to him. And finally, just a word of general exhortation. What do we do with this text? I mean, here we are. Wrath of God is revealed. The wrath of God is revealed against all humanity because they've rejected God in their rebellious hearts. Man's rebellious rejection of God is manifested in all kinds of manner of unrighteous thinking and living. And then God's wrath is revealed as he gives people. What do we, what do, we do with that message? Here's what I think we do with it. We realize that verses 16 and 17, Paul wrote them knowing what he was about to write in verses 18 through 32. In other words, the realization that all of humanity is under God's wrath because of their rebellious rejection against him, leading to all kinds of unrighteous thinking, living, and worship, and God even giving them over in judgment. What we need when we understand this point is to recognize what the gospel does. And Paul's been very explicit about the gospel. He said in verses 16 and 17, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it's written, the righteous shall live by faith. Paul's been very explicit about the fact that the gospel is power, and the gospel is the revelation of the righteousness of God. And the reason those two things are so utterly necessary for us to understand and grab onto is because of what we just heard in verses 18 to 32. What it means is, listen, our task isn't to go into the world where people are kind of morally neutral, their thinking is neutral, and just persuade them and convince them, come to Christ, this is a better way of life. Do you want your, you know, better life? No. No. Paul says men are, have a settled darkness in their heart that is rebellion against their maker. The reason they don't come to God is not because they don't understand. It's because they hate him. They love darkness and hate the light, John says. What they need is not a convincing, persuasive message from you. What they need is the power of God for salvation. That can take a heart that loves darkness and rip it out and put in a heart that loves light. Take out a heart of stone that is hardened to the Lord and put in a heart of flesh that beats and that loves Him. And there is something God gives us that is powerful to do that and it's the gospel. This is why we must preach the gospel because you can go to men in their hardened rebellion against God and preach to them. And what happens is they can go from a kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved Son and love Him. This is what Michael read earlier. 1 Thessalonians 1, 4 through 5. He, Paul says, I know that God chose you because our gospel came to you not only in word. Sometimes you preach the gospel, just word. They ignore it. Go on. Paul says, that's not how it came to you. I know that God chose you, he said, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Paul says, I know that God chose you. Why? Because when we preached to you, the Spirit powerfully worked and you came to life and you believed. And here's what's interesting, right? I just can't help but think that when Paul wrote 1 Thessalonians 1, he had Romans 1 in mind. Because Paul, uh, or, or just this thought, right? I know the order of the books. Anyway, okay, yes. Paul says in Romans 1, more rejection of God, exchanging the glory of God for mortal things, idolatry, right? Remember what Paul says to Thessalonians? Gospel came, power, spirit, full conviction. He says in verses 9 and 10, you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Exchange the truth about God for a lie. You turn from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for a son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. You want to be free from God's wrath? You want to turn from idols? You want to turn from all the lies to the one who is true? Hear and believe the gospel. This is why we must be eager to preach that the gospel alone is the power of God to salvation as the Spirit works through the preaching of the gospel to change men's hearts. 
It's also crucial that we understand the second thing Paul mentioned in verse 17. In it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Because brothers and sisters, the sins mentioned in this text, you and I are deceiving ourselves if you think that this is not descriptive of us as well, right? That, there, that we don't read these sins and go, oh, good grief, I never realized there are people in the world who envied. Right? People out there are struggling with strife. Can you believe children out there are disobedient to parents? Because you and I can no doubt look at our own lives, can look at our life history. It may be filled with sexual morality, homosexual activity, envy, strife, disobedience to parents, covetousness, maliciousness, heartlessness, ruthlessness. But this is the glory of the gospel. In it, the righteousness of God is revealed. God does not invite us in our sins to get better so that He can approve of us. He calls not the righteous, but sinners to come to repentance and place their faith in Him, in which case their sins are forgiven. And then Christ's perfect righteousness is credited to them. And this is what's glorious. When God credits the righteousness of Christ to us in faith, He not only credits us with the righteousness of Christ, but His Holy Spirit comes and indwells us so that all of a sudden we see the desires of our heart beginning to change. Now, it doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that every sinful desire you knew before you came to Christ has just gone away. Right? Paul will talk about in the book of Galatians, the flesh wars against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. The, fi- the fact that that fight is there is not a sign that you don't know Christ, but that you do know him. And in this age, I've heard stories in which this sometimes happens. It is sometimes true that God talks, takes away a desire for a sin that you've had, just takes away completely on the spot, miraculously. That's true. That happens sometimes. I think that is atypical. I think what typically happens is the gospel comes to us and God credits us with the perfect righteousness of Christ and then the Spirit comes to indwell against us. But it's not as if every evil desire has all of a sudden gone away as if we never feel them anymore. Yet, the Spirit gives us power to walk in holiness. What I'm saying to you, brothers and sisters, is this. There will come a day When God the Son returns and takes us home, when we are saved to sin no more, as we said earlier, where you will never feel the internal desire to lust again. You'll never feel the internal internal desire to covet or envy again. But it may well be that you have to do war with that desire now, but you can do war with that desire now. Because not only Are you credited with the righteousness of Christ, but the Spirit of God lives in you? He's given you the gospel, He's given you the Spirit, and He's given you the church to exhort you every day while it's still called today so that you're not hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Brother or sister who who has felt same-sex attraction for years and the world is screaming to you, if that desires in you, just be true to it and do it. And you read this text, you say, but I know God disapproves of carrying that out. Yes, God disapproves of it, but here's the great thing. The gospel comes and credits you with righteousness. The Spirit indwells you. He makes you part of the church. And I want to say to you, listen, the Lord may never completely obliterate your attraction to the same sex, but God does call you to walk in holiness. And He will equip you by the power of His Spirit to do this. Let me read you one more encouraging text. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That's what the Lord does through His gospel. And so, brothers and sisters, I think the glory of this text is remembering God's wrath, remembering man's rejection, remembering that no man is ignorant and no man is innocent, and every man is in need of the gospel, is the reason why we go preach. Because what we have in the gospel 
It's the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. For in it, the righteous gift of God is revealed as we believe. So if you're not a believer in Christ this morning, I want to plead with you to place your faith in Christ. If you found your heart kind of wakened up to thinking, I think what he's saying may be true, this may be the very power of God at work in you. If you want to come talk to me after the service or one of your neighbors, we would love to talk to you. And my prayer is going to be that you come to faith and then profess faith in baptism before a watching world saying, I'm following the crucified and risen Lord Jesus Christ. If you are a believer this morning, you professed your faith in Christ, you're a member in good standing with the gospel preaching church, in a second, we're going to take a moment of silence, and then we're going to come to the table. And I want to invite you, if that's true of you, what I've just described is true of you, I want to invite you when we pass around this bread and pass around this cup to take the bread and to take the cup. We'll then eat of the bread together and we'll drink of the cup from the cup together. And what we're doing when we do this is we're visibly proclaiming, I'm trusting in the one who gave his body and shed his blood for me. By God's grace, the gospel has had a powerful effect in my life so that I've been credited with the righteousness of Christ and want to obey him. That's what we're professing. And we could profess that as a church. But in that time that we take that moment of silence as the ushers come forward and musicians get in place, maybe you just want to use that time this morning just to pray. Maybe, maybe you've found that word of comfort. Lord, I'm trying to stand strong and those around me look like they're getting away with it, but you reminded me this morning or not. Help me, encourage me. Maybe you found conviction and you need to spend that moment of silent repenting. Lord, I'm going to turn from what you clearly disapprove of so I can walk in holiness. Maybe this morning you just want to ask for help. God, help me. Help me to walk in holiness. And then surround yourself with people who will aid you. And then we'll come to the table, remembering that God's answers are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. So let's take a moment of silence now as we prepare to come to the table this morning.